Well, Christopher, finally you're on the show. Thanks, man. It's nice to be on the other side of the microphone. I know. How many times have I been on yours? Six, seven, eight. Yeah. A lot. Yeah, big repeat guest here. Do we need to mention the fact that we're wearing the same t-shirt? I feel like that's the... Oh, yeah, baby. What's going to be called out first? I wore this because I thought it would be cool for me to wear your t-shirt. Right. And then we walked out of the house together <laughs> and you had the exact same t-shirt. At least it's the same t-shirt, but in a different color now. Yeah. So for for the, <laughs> for those who are unaware, we are roommates and best mates as well. And our story is pretty interesting, actually. How did we meet? I brought you on my show because I was watching your stuff on YouTube three, four years ago, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, good, interesting cultural commentary around fitness, and then I wanted to bring you on. Did, and you were in some really dingy-looking, everything was cream, cream walls, cream ceiling, uh, that sort of silver-colored yeti that you had uh we just we, we had a chat about i think it was weightlifting the world of weightlifting went through a bunch of stuff this was during the pandemics this was probably april 2020 april or may 2020 uh, and then we just kept in touch and uh i was the uk was completely locked down so i would go for a walk there's like a 30 minute 40 minute loop that i used to do back home and um we just kept on chatting and i would ring you because i just wanted someone to chat to that was interesting uh, and then you started going through a number of breakups yeah uh in, in sequence <laughs> that's and when we really started to bond because i got to observe i got to observe your entire life fall apart like twice in yeah. the space of 18 months and then finally when that that last breakup when it f finished up you were so patient and so kind the entire time and then finally when it ended you got you're like, good riddance to that slag <laughs> I think I, I think I specifically said I don't ever want to hear that slag's name again. Um, yeah, I, I just I'd put up with a lot of yeah, man, very gentle support. I knew it was difficult for you. I knew it was a hard time, uh, and then it got to the stage where I, f I figured that you didn't need the support anymore, and I could let loose with my inner emotions. And then um, you're like, man, I got to get out of the UK. And I think it was. Um, I don't know if it was just because, you know, the pandemic or whatever, but I feel like you felt like you were hindered because of your career. Yeah, I was held back. So for the people that don't know, I was a club promoter for a very long time, uh, run one of the biggest events companies in the UK for a decade and a half. And it just David Data talks in uh, The Way the Superior Man about falling out of love with something that used to give you purpose. And he, I think he describes it as like a crab that's breaking through its shell and you kind of feel all constricted and constrained and it's it's stiff and awkward uh, and I started to feel like that which was so weird because I'd loved club promo for so long I'd loved filling nightclubs I worked with my best friend in the UK I was the groomsman at his wedding we sat next to each other in our first ever seminar at university you know we'd lived in Edinburgh together we'd gone on holiday together we'd run nightclubs together we'd gone through breakup like everything and then I was I, I felt kind of disjointed because I thought well this thing that I used to take so much pride in myself for doing, it was my identity, was completely wrapped up. I was the guy on the front door of the nightclub. And and then I needed to, uh, I kind of felt just some discontinuity with what was going on. I wasn't, I wasn't aligned so much anymore. And the show kind of highlighted, here is maybe where the next pursuit is going to be. Here's, here's an interesting thing. I can't remember whether I've ever told you about this, but... Um, because I worked very hard in my 20s, I 
and then I learned about leverage and scaling and stuff through Naval Ravikant specifically, but just kind of the whatever four or five years ago world of Shane Parrish from FS.blog and and other people that talk about scale. Uh, and I remember thinking, God, I, I put so much time and attention and effort into this career that I had in my twenties and it had no leverage or scale because Newcastle's got a million people in, 60,000 of which are below the age of 25 and above the age of 18. I can't scale this business outside of the city because it's like geographically mm. tethered to who knows me and blah, blah, blah. And I got, uh, I almost felt resentment, or certainly at least a bit wistful about the fact, I wonder if I've like blown my load of uh, industrious hard work and grind pursuit at a particular skill or a particular industry. I wonder if um, I'm never going to get that back. And I decided to give my one shot to this thing that had a lower upper bound ceiling right. than something which maybe had more scale or leverage available to it. And then it got to the stage when podcasting came around. I mean, you know, like we both work very hard and we get to watch each other work in, in the house as well. So um, it's so funny that I, I kind of thought I had fear that, oh no, maybe I've, I've let it go and it's never going to come back. And I, and now I work harder than ever before at something which does have the scale and does have the leverage, uh, and I enjoy just as much. So you decided to then move to the States, but you didn't know where it was going to be, either New York, L.A., and yeah, New, or Austin. New York, New York, L.A., Miami, Nashville, Austin. And I think that's where I was like, dude, I'm moving. We should move in together, move to Austin. I was like really in your ear about that. I was not going to let you go to New York or L.A. <laughs> well, the pandemic put a pretty easy stop on that yeah and dude you've it's blown up everything's blown up for you since you've come to austin so you're welcome for that <laughs> <laughs> you're fucking welcome dude you're right. you're right uh so but i, I want to before we move on i want to touch on that you you mentioned like oh no i can't scale yeah what what about people who don't who can't scale like maybe there, there, there has to be a way of living where you can feel fulfilled without scaling and growing and getting better and better and better at whatever your job is, right? Like, or, or now that I think about it, you know, you're making, you can make improvements. Like, it's always worthwhile for someone to Im improve over time. I mean, look at this. No excuses, just improve. That's like yep. my mantra. And I guess I'm arguing it against it a little bit. But you felt like, oh, my God. I'm in something that I've worked so hard for and I can see the, the, the ceiling and it's yes. like stressing me more, out. It's like, that was there more, has to be a way of living where that doesn't stress you out, right? Yeah, I suppose so. That was more to do with business rather than personal development. So the concern was that um, when you, the internet is basically unlimited, right? You're never going to reach all 7 billion people. So it, it, you have- Right, a, the a, scale a, is fire. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, wh whereas any physical business is constrained by how many people need cakes within a five mile radius or whatever it is if you're a bakery. Um, when it comes to personal development, it is an endless game. It's an infinite game. And that's what's so brilliant about relying on something like curiosity or a desire for personal growth to be a driver for you. Because at 75 years old, you can learn about a concept that you've never heard of before, and it'll give you just as much pleasure and enjoyment as something that you learned when you were 18, because it's new. And yeah. that, that's, that's what's fantastic about learning about yourself and the world around you, which is my mantra for the show. Like, understand yourself and the world around you. That was the reason that I wanted to start doing it. Um, when it comes to business, you know, it, it's a, a brutal realization that you look at a mom and pop store or, you know, a, a, a plumber or something like that. 
And there is a, a, a lower cap on being a plumber versus releasing an online course of how to be a plumber, right? Right. The online course of how to be a plumber is a lot less of a well-worn path. It's going to be significantly more difficult for you to understand, especially if you come from a hands-on spit and sawdust background. But there's uh, essentially an unlimited market for you to tap into. And I think that it was just me with a lot of friends like you, you know, you made money on the internet before I made money on the internet through right. Patreon, through training programs. Max, you know, in a space where it is notoriously not a money making space. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Weightlifting, uh, it's like, that's it. Like, yo, you want to be a weightlifting coach? Like, you're going to be poor. Yes. Yeah. And you're also going to be in person. Right. You know, the, you, uh, Dylan, making this work on the internet is rare. So for me to be around these sorts of people, and again, this is for anyone that's still in a more traditional bricks and mortar type job. You know, there are opportunities down the line for you that you can't foresee. Uh, for instance, for me, um, networking was something that was just... Oh, my God, man. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, you're, you're, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, I know. Um, it's just in my blood, right, from a decade and a half of just hammering away on that craft. I need to get 500 to 1,500 kids into a nightclub every single Thursday, Friday, Saturday for... a like I say, 15 years. So I, it was just a part of me. And that skill, which I thought, oh God, like, how am I ever going to monetize networking with the club promo stuff and geographically tethered and all that? Uh, and then it comes to podcasting and you realize, oh, actually it's the same skill just with a slight different direction on it. Uh, and you can make as much money as you want. You can use it for a whole host of different solutions. It's so cool to have a skill that you can prove to people. Like it's your virtual resume. And then that's where you can gain that networking. I've, I, I didn't, I wasn't really a fan of that term networking for a long time because it seemed so stale. It seemed like, oh, you have to go to events to network to do this. But for me in the past, I'd say eight months when I decided to do YouTube, like really, really do it, like, you know, three, four videos per week. Um, that's where I actually started to network, but I didn't really realize I was doing that. Mark Bell was probably one of the first. I basically called Mark Bell and, and Seema out on a video. And then they reached out to me and said, come on the podcast. I said, great. Boom. Friends. Yes. Ne that was networking, but that's not when I think of the word networking, it's such a stale term. The reason that that worked, and this is an interesting lesson, I think, that I, I observed, and I've seen with Derek as well. Um, you know, Derek did that really famous Palumboism video about Rogan, mm -hmm. and Rogan then happily brought him on his podcast and brought up this video. But the reason that that worked, and most people don't see, you know, what you look at maybe a, a Coffeezilla, for instance, who would be a little bit more aggressive or have a bit more kind of like uh, venom to some of the things that he says. Uh, something tells me that Logan Paul and, and Coffeezilla are not going to become friends in the future. But by putting forward a fair and well-reasoned yes. potential criticism, you do leave the door open for friendship or for a connection with people. And there, for, for sure, there are some people for whom even the slightest amount of criticism would trigger in them something where they would never want to reach out to you in any case. But I think that that was something that I learned from watching you and Derek do your videos over the last few years, which is you can um, push back against somebody's ideas in a good faith way, and maybe it even leads to a greater friendship rather than uh, immediately positioning you as enemies on different sides. Even of the though, but adversarial uh, 
engagement is like so it'll get views oh it'll get views but yeah. it won't make friends not right. with the person that you're being yeah. an adversary to right and then long term like i've i've could have gone after derek for some things or whatever and been a because a lot of people do that on mm -hmm. the internet um and it would have made good views in the moment but then i wouldn't have a long-term friend yeah. Derek. yeah i wouldn't have so many different opportunities i want to talk about um because we, we, we're mentioning scaling, and uh, something I'm incredibly interested in is charlatans. And the reason I'm interested in them is because they frustrate me so much. Like, I see people, and I my, my immediate reaction is anger, and then kind of like sadness, like this... Um, Pity. Yeah, like, well, no, no. It's, it's existential dread, kind of. Like, look at how successful this person for all the wrong, wrong reasons. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so my initial reaction is just to get on my camera and shout, right? But then I take a step back and I want to, like, reverse engineer why they are in the place they are in. And in doing so, it's like I came up with this charlatan's playbook. And one of the, the more recent ones that I've found has been V-Shred, and I've shared it with you quite a bit. Oh, yeah. He's doing that stuff with his um, adverts. Yes. <laughs> his, so his, he is basically the antithesis of a creator, in my mind. Everything he does is to, uh, it's, it's all about SEO. It's all about engagement so that people can click. It's like a click funnel thing. It's all of the terms that I don't give a f about. Like all the shit that I just, I just want to make good videos for people. And this, this guy is like, how can I get people to click to get to, to my website so they can take this, um, what is the thing he does? It's a, the, the body type quiz because the body types for him determine oh, yeah. what your path is going to be. That's okay. If we look at charlatans, that's his sacred knowledge. Gated information. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, and then the in-group, out-group, which he says on every one of his things is CrossFit's not going to do it. Keto's not going to do it. Yep. Cardio's not going to do it. There's your out-group. Yep. Here's the in-group. Come to me. Yep. And then all you need to do is sell. And so that's basically the, the charlatan thing. But it's this blatant disregard for creativity and creation on this platform that really pisses me off the most. And I just, <laughs> the, the latest thing that I saw, man, he put a maroon curtain behind him. He had the SM7B that Rogan has. He even has the same boom stand and the same headphones. And he's looking at the same angle that they showed the guests for Rogan. And he's not on Rogan. Mind you, he's not even on a podcast. And yet, when you, when you see this clip, to, to the layman, they're like, wow, he's on Rogan. Let's see what's going on here. No comments available. He, he turns comments off of every one of these p pieces of whatever, of content. And so, like, you see things like this, and this guy has to be raking it in. And it's just completely frustrating. And it's like, I don't even know... It's, it's, I don't even know where to go with that. Like, if I'm to be sad about it, you know? I guess... Yeah, I would. I mean, I think that this may be the first in a series of videos that has you going down the V shred rabbit hole, you know, like the Liver King rabbit hole. But a lot of people have had a bunch of problems with him for a long time. I'm not super familiar with everything that he does, but I know that he seems to have 
made some pretty outrageous claims that he does the in-group, out-group tribal stuff. One thing that I would say that I've been considering a lot recently is it doesn't matter how much money you make. If you lose your status en route to making the money, you're going to be miserable because a lot of guys can have tons and tons of money and no respect from any of the people that they respect and all of the money in the world doesn't mean anything. But uh, can I challenge that? Mm -hmm. Because we see that all the time. We see people love people for having money. Like at, at the Liver King. Um, who that you respect in the fitness industry. I know not that I respect. But who, who that anybody respects in the fitness industry respects V-Shred. Nobody. And right, that's my point. Right. If okay, the people yeah. that you respect don't respect you, like it's fine. Here's your army of whatever grandmas that don't understand the difference between a, a fat and a carb macro fine that, that can be your audience but ultimately you want to be respected by people that you respect by other people that you admire within your industry if you sacrifice en route to getting success if you end up making yourself and your position so toxic and so uncool and so narcissistic and unlovable that every single person that you respect thinks oh you're the epitome of cringe you're not going to feel happy no matter how much money you have. And you see this, uh, there's a bunch of different creators in the UK that have had incredibly successful book launches or created online programs or done whatever. And even though all of that's happened, they now can't sell out a live show. They can't sell a book anymore because they've rinsed their audience for all that they've got. And en route to doing that, all of the people that they cared about don't care about them. Perfect example, Liver King. How desperately did Liver King want to get on Rogan? It was palpable right he was ringing people the day that the the story broke trying to get an intro rogan even brought it up i think on the episode with derek where he said like a mutual friend of ours was rung by liver king to see if i wanted to bring him on and i said no he's not coming on the podcast millions and millions of times he's brought up beforehand i you know i ran through and i spoke to my wife and i said joe rogan's talking about me how amazing is this it's like dude he's he, he's not respecting you yeah. So even all of the money that Liver King makes, which is probably going to be way more money than V Shred makes. So I, I guess he isn't respected by the people he respects. Yeah, I guess it's just like the the idea of the lovable heel, and it's like something that I know we see it in America. I'm, it could be international as well. I mean, Andrew Tate was a good example of this as well, where if, if as long as you can show that you're good at something, and if that thing is making money people will love you for it. Even if what you're doing is a bad thing. And Andrew Tate's a prime example of that. So like even the Liver King thing, he was going on podcast after podcast denying being on steroids over and over and over again. And he kept getting more and more famous and people were like, oh, this guy's full of shit. But yet, and I, and I always bring this up, him being on the UFC broadcast that's like a big deal because they're like, oh, look, here's Halle Berry. Here's Kevin Costner. Yeah. Like, and then, oh, look, there's the Liver King. And it's on, I'm talking the main, you know, the main feed for the UFC. And he's like waving to the camera. It's like right there is a prime example of a guy who is is a charlatan, is doing everything wrong in, in, in our conversation, who has no none of the respect or anything. And yet here he is garnering the respect. And so it still exists, though. Like, that's the ultimate qualm that I have. If V-Shred was to go and say, hey, look at all the cars, look at all the money, look at all the clients that have been successful, you know, he, he could literally show a pay stub 
and people be like, yeah, like hate him, hate the, you know, hate the player, don't hate the game or whatever the, f you know, saying to now excuse his charlatanism. Mm, I don't think that he's particularly relatable. Again, I'm not as familiar with this. Right. I, I mean, but you know, the, there are parts of Liver King that's relatable. You know, to give him his due, he t he's training hard. He's obviously doing work regularly. He's talking about things that all of us consider. He's talking about diet. He's talking about training. He's talking about thinking about things in a, a deep way, even if he doesn't necessarily think about them in a deep way. Um, and the lovable heel, I think Tate is an interesting example of that. Even with him, there's a, a degree of personability that he has. It feels like... I'm talking to at least a little bit of a real human, whereas V-Shred feels like I'm talking to an advertisement boarding. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just, I feel like Liver King would be kind of, like you're talking to a WWE character. Yeah, I mean, you, you really don't know uh, the cadence to even all of the things, even when he did his apology, know, and he was like man. talking about the like pointing, like ascending to the sky and all of this stuff. Uh, yeah, have you seen that video from ages ago where him, he's in the car, I think, wishing somebody a happy birthday, and it's the same accent, it kind of, but just a, like a normal guy. He just sounds like a totally normal human. It's so bizarre to see. Him, like, it's less character? Oh, it's, well, there's no character. Oh, yeah, it's man. just him being totally normal. I would love that. Yeah, it's floating around on the internet. But... I'll tell you this much. If he does go natty, which he said he, he was going to on Schultz, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you type of thing. Mm. Um, if he actually does go natty, he will garner my respect, I think. Mm. Well, it would be dangerous, right? Derek said that. Yeah. It's... If he decides to drop off everything. The goal of this wasn't to <laughs> get him to stop taking drugs. The goal of this was to get him to come clean about taking drugs. Right. And I think, um, but, so so Pete Rubish is a great example of this. Do you know who Pete Rubish is? So he's... Uh, he was a legend, you know, you know when powerlifting was like the thing. Mark Bell was a big part of this crew. The elite FTS guys, the West Side guys. It was a really kind of cool time of the internet uh, where a lot of our information was from powerlifters who started to geek out on training and getting really, really strong. And the numbers kept going higher and higher and higher. It's kind of tapered off a little bit. But Pete Rubish was one of these guys that there's a, there's a really great video. It's him... Uh, building it's it's his deadlift over time in his mom's basement and there's a point where he starts taking drugs and these numbers start going crazy and he is fucking nuts on camera like yeah and he's you know pulling 800 regularly and um and pulling it conventionally he's a fucking monster and pete and i now have become really good friends because he has gone completely natural from a guy that abused the out of drugs for a long time to have gone completely natural and everyone's like man just take trt It'll, you'll be fine hmm. his uh he he posted on instagram it was really cool i just said pete you're amazing like on it um because he posted his testosterone level uh and then he posted his meat that he competed in uh and he his, his testosterone was like 287 and he's Whoa. 31 32 it's really really low um you know, borderline hypogonadal, pretty much it's, it's obviously something. Not good. Yeah. Not good. Um, but he's like, dude, I want to be clean for three years so I can compete in tested powerlifting. That's what I want to do. And I want to go for it. I don't care what anyone says. And I'm like, Pete, that is amazing. Pretty cool. So it's possible. And I think it, I think it is possible. Maybe it's dangerous. Maybe it's stupid, 
but it's one of those things like you know it's it's a similar thing to like david goggins where hey man it's what you're doing like you of all people have experience with david goggins and the dangers that he put his body through and the the god the video that you did with him where it was like he's talking about the shit that happened to his knee and his leg yeah and the doctor being like i've didn't know that this was humanly possible. Yeah, you have no cartilage. It's just bone on bone. Yeah, I, it's it's the places that people go to in order to achieve the extreme things that we all look at are very extreme. And um, that's one of the lessons that I learned last year, which is most of the people that you admire are just normal humans that sacrificed almost everything in their life to become good at one thing. Right. That's really where most success comes from. And given the choice of whether you would pay the price that you need in order to be able to be that good, you probably wouldn't pay it. Eddie Hall, Tiger Woods, Elon Musk, like Lewis Hamilton, whoever, pick your top performer in whichever field it is that you care about. The reason that they're so good is they've sacrificed pretty much everything else in their life. You see this, there's a cool... Um, charity golf match happening a few years ago and during these golf matches they mic the players throughout the whole thing oh yeah i love those so usually yeah. they don't you, you can't work out what the caddy and the golfer are saying to each other in between holes but with this because it's usually a celebrity of some kind and a pro golfer that are partnered up you'll hear them talking the whole time uh and i think that um tiger woods with some celebrity was one of them and rory mcelroy with some other celebrity and they were both playing as, as two pairs against each other, I think. And um, Rory McIlroy and this dude are walking down talking about, I think it was a, an in-depth debate about whether Pizza Hut or Domino's are better. Like really, really in-depth, talking about the crust, talking about the seasoning, talking about the, the delivery time, everything. And then it cut to Tiger Woods and his partner and it was the swing, the wind, the humidity, the golf choice that he's going to have. Like, we need to make sure that we open the face because you've got to be careful here. We've got this water hazard on the right-hand side. What was interesting about that exchange was how rare it is to see a Rory McIlroy, right? To see somebody that is able to p compete at close to the absolute top and still be able to switch off. That was what really stood out to me. And the same thing goes for, you know, the Gogginses of the world, there are lessons that you absolutely need to take from somebody like David Goggins, but that doesn't mean that you need to model your entire life on them because the price that they have to pay to be that trailblazing forger, the yep. person that goes and plants the flag at the top of the mountain that nobody has ever been to before, is essentially unbearable. And that's something that people don't see because you get to see, oh, look at the glory, look at the sails. Look yeah, at this, yeah that, and tell the other. me the, the Tiger Woods story sorry to about him as a, a, a yes kid. because this was one of my favorite posts that you had um you've mentioned it quite a few times but i think specifically on instagram you clipped it out yeah um, so the tiger woods thing yeah so this is from ryan holiday's uh the obstacle is the way and yeah really really fantastic and in it he talks about tiger woods's upbringing and you know there's a video of tiger at age two or three I think it might even be like two and a half or three years old. I didn't even know the kids could, I don't know when kids start walking. I don't know much about kids. Um, and he's there on some late night show, David Letterman or something, hitting a golf ball like really well. And you think this is kind of intense. And his dad was tyrannical, fanatical about getting Tiger to be an effective, good golfer. 
And it got to the stage as he started to grow up that he would push Tiger. He would racially abuse him while he was on the golf course. He would say, these white people are never going to let you in here. He would call him the N-word in front of his friends. And the reason is that he wanted to forge this human that needed to succeed, that could get through absolutely anything. And he pushed him so hard that he had a safe word like you do during rough sex. And it was called the E-word. And he said, if it's ever getting too much, just say the E-word, say the E-word and I'll stop. And he never once said it throughout his entire childhood. And the E-word was enough. He never, ever once said it. And the problem that you have, when you look at that, you go, oh my God, you know, this is something that in retrospect looks pretty close to child abuse, but manages to forge one of the greatest golfers of all time, perhaps one of the most iconic golfers of all time for sure. But what's the price that Tiger had to pay for that? You know, the most public marriage failure of any professional athlete in probably a decade, being chased down the driveway with his wife waving a golf club. He's fallen asleep at the wheel and broken both of his legs. He's on antipsychotics. He can't hold a relationship together. Like, I, I love the guy and I respect him as a, an athlete very, very much. I think what he's done for the game of golf is phenomenal, but I don't want to be him. And I don't think that many people would want to be him. The price that you have to pay to be Tiger Woods is insurmountable. Yeah, I, the thing is, you say people wouldn't want to be him, but they romanticize it. And in that way, that romantic version of him, they want to be. And over and over and over again, you're going to see the same thing. And I I uh, did a podcast with Matt Fraser recently, and then I did one with Craig Ritchie. And it was actually funny to see to, to hear Craig Ritchie speak um, about Matt and then go and interview Matt. And Craig was like, uh, we, we went go-karting. And this was after Matt had retired, I believe. We went go-karting, and um, they were going for the fastest lap, and Craig got a faster lap than him. And Matt was like, no, 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 we're going to do another one. We're going to do another one. We're going to." He's like pulling out his wallet, wanting to pay so that they could do another round. And Craig's like, no, we got to go, dude. We got to leave. And like Matt was like, no, 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 we have to do it. Like I need, like need, He needed to win. Yep. It's the same thing with Michael Jordan playing the game in in the last dance where he's playing this quarter game did you see this yeah against yeah. the guy with the and weird head the the yeah 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 i love <laughs> dude that whole the, the michael jordan lore but here's the thing is like we we'll we will always romanticize the the winners and i say the toxic winner because I mean, toxic's a weird term it's like it's an extreme loki term an, it's an extreme winning mentality yes and it's just so fascinating to me i could talk about this forever because I don't know. Have you heard? So, did you read it's, a? Sorry, it, it's the same reason why we we like we are attracted to Andrew Tate, even though he's a horrible human. Like time, and he just—it's like people are just like, yeah, but look at him win. Yeah. Well, this is it's two a bunch of threads I've got open in my mind now. So the first one, uh, anybody that hasn't read Chasing Excellence by Ben Bergeron, regardless of what you think of Ben. This is peak CrossFit 2017 CrossFit Games when Katrin and Matt both won and Ben was coaching them both. And it is, it'll take you two and a half hours, three hours to read. And it is fantastic. And it goes through some of the psychology, some of the mindset stuff that both of those athletes had. And he tells this story about when Matt was an engineering student yes. at university. And, university of Vermont, baby. And he was in the library and he would force himself to be able to wrote, memorize, and recite an entire textbook to himself. He had to be able to say every single word on every single page, or every single page of his notes or something like that. And if he got one word wrong, he had to go right back to the start and go again. He wouldn't even let himself leave 
the library until he'd got that done. And you think, okay, that is an incredibly singular individual to make yourself do that, to not just go, oh, okay, I missed that one word, but like, let's go back. Um, when it comes to the Andrew Tate and the winning thing, a great example of this is Billy McFarlane from Fire Festival. Mm -hmm. So Fire Festival, this huge catastrophe, <laughs> like the the this amazing guy. story, amazing lore behind this. Really great, yeah. One of the best documentaries that I've seen, and I actually brought one of the producers on the show to talk about it a few years ago. And um, one of the things that I learned from watching that documentary was had Billy McFarland managed to pull off an even slightly passable festival, he would have been hailed as one of the most savant marketing geniuses of his age. Even if it was just, if it was just not a nightmare, he would have been hailed as this complete visionary. The reason for that is that we are prepared to let an awful lot of misdemeanors slide in service of success. This is how much we pray at the altar of success in the modern world, that Billy McFarland wasn't wrong for the way that he sold the event to most people. He was wrong because he sold an event that didn't happen. Hang on a second. So what, what you're telling me is that the problem you have with the event was that the event didn't work. Not with the unethical marketing practices, not with him selling and raising money and capital from people that they, he wasn't actually telling them exactly what the event was going to be and all the rest of it. Your problem was that logistically, operationally, he wasn't sufficiently robust. Okay, but that, that doesn't change the ethics or, or the drive for why he was doing things. And what that showed me, do you understand what I'm getting mm -hmm. at here where I'm yeah, pulling yeah, apart? Yep, yep. That if you are able to succeed the world will forgive an awful lot of your transgressions. I remember as well, Tyron Woodley, when he was still in the UFC, he had this super, super boring title defense. I can't remember who it was against. He just laid on this guy or they laid on each other for five rounds. And it was, I'm pretty sure Dana White said, I don't know what the f just happened in that fight, but like that, that needs to never, ever happen again. That's one of the worst fights I've ever seen in my entire life. And one of the press said, Tyron, people aren't particularly happy with your performance this evening. And he said... My job's to win. My job is to come out here and my job is to win and defend my title. That's what I did tonight. I got the job done. You think, okay, that's that's actually all of this together, all of these different, the, the, the Tate with someone who has, a to many people, a very objectionable philosophy but continues to win. The Billy McFarland who would have been hailed as a marketing supreme had he have not managed to mess up the water delivery and had to get someone to suck somebody off to get some Evian. And then the uh, Tyron Woodley, boring fight, but his focus was on winning. If you continue to succeed, people will let a lot of other things slide. Yeah, and Jake Paul and Logan Paul are kind of in that. They're definitely in 100%. Yeah, and so it's interesting you bring up uh, Tyron Woodley as well because Jake Paul is, has this fight coming up. Um, he obviously fought Tyron Woodley. Um but those two kids, gentlemen now, um, are the perfect representation of exactly what you just said. Logan Paul went to, <laughs> pulled off one of the, the most notorious rug pulls in front of everyone's eyes. Not only did he pull it off, he was completely exposed for it. I'm wondering if the SEC is going to go after him and, or if they're currently going after him. Within weeks, his drink company is uh, becomes the uh, 
drink sponsorship of the UFC within weeks. And everyone goes, oh, Logan Ball's winning again. We don't care. He, <laughs> The Paul brothers are an unstoppable force. That it is. I, I tweeted it well, a little while ago. Are, but if they keep, they win. They just have these wins. They're, that pull they're them an out. unstoppable force I know. because they continue to win. I know. But this is the thing because <laughs> success creates a, a reality distortion field around the person that's successful, right? And especially if you're an ascending stock, if it looks like your trajectory is going up. I had this conversation with Mark Manson a, a couple of weeks ago on my show where I was saying that I've noticed recently people have started to treat me a little bit differently. Like, not people that I've already known, but new people that I meet, and I can't work out whether they've got my best interests at heart or whether they just want to be around someone that they think is kind of like a penny stock. Not, you said oh, this I, to Mark? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, and because he was the same. He had this rapid ascendancy, right? He sold the book, uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and it did like just a Ridiculous. Abs- yeah, yeah. In, just a monster. And it, it sold more copies than he'd intended to sell in his entire life in the first three months, and he was on all national TV, and then he got depressed afterward. And then he had all of these opportunities and these people coming up to him, uh, and it's because people want to be associated with something that they see as success in the future. Jake Paul, Logan Paul, unstoppable force. The reason that they are is because they, I think, to give them their due, both of those guys accumulated the skills that they needed that are sufficiently flexible to be able to use in most of these situations now. Fantastic communicators, like legendary level communicators. Do you remember that uh, when Logan Paul did the Challenger Games and he went on MSNBC Business and they were having a conversation because his tax returns had just been submitted. And they said, uh, Logan, you're one of the richest YouTubers in the world. Um, with uh, You submitted like $20 million or something like that in revenue last year. Uh, and throughout the entire interview with this uh, pretty attractive female interviewer on MSNBC, Logan Paul just will not stop talking about how he's the fastest man on the planet. Like, he won't stop talking about it. She keeps on saying, like, so the tax return, are you concerned about, you know, costs and blah, blah, blah? And he says, I actually think I might be faster than Usain Bolt. I genuinely think I might be the fastest man. I have got a little bit of pink eye. If you have a look here, you'll notice I have got a little bit of pink eye. Uh, one of my housemates, you know, it was he was messing around with my pillowcase last night. And Logan Paul broke the internet because they said he's had this huge opportunity to speak to a primetime MSNBC interview. And he trolled them the whole and time? No, but they said, like, look at this idiot. Look at this guy who um, doesn't understand the platform that he's on. He's not able to be professional. He's not able to blah, 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 blah. And then I think a few days later, Logan posted some sort of insight or analytic from the back end of maybe the Challenger Games website or maybe his YouTube channel or maybe his Twitter impressions or something like that, uh, saying like, who's the idiot now? And it was just this insane virality that he'd created. And he created it because he's able to play with that. Um, he, He understands all of the different uh, like the composition of the conversation very, very well. Same thing goes with Jake Paul. Like if I was facing Jake Paul, I would be more concerned about the press conference than about the fight because he is very, very, very competent, very well prepared. He's got his lines that he knows that he's going to bring up against you. He's going to... <laughs> when Logan Paul faced off against Floyd Mayweather, he said you're 51 and 1 because of your wife. <laughs> Like, or 51 and 0 because of your wife. Like, I'm going to make it 51 and 1 on July 4th or something. Um, like, <laughs> it's, they're just smart kids. And they yeah. developed this over a very, very long time. They built up this daily vlogs. People forget this, man. They grinded their balls off on YouTube for a very, very long time. Yeah, you know, if you weren't into that whole Team 10 
super you remember that squeak noise that they used to put over every swear yes. word uh, it, it might not be your type of content and it is it does feel a little bit dated now in this era of youtube but they grinded and they built up a platform they accumulated the skills that they needed and they now have unstoppable success in completely different arenas logan paul crushing wrestlemania a drinks company Podcasting, which is long form, which is more subtle and, and nuanced. Jake Paul going into an arena, which is, you. it doesn't matter how much time you spend on YouTube, that's not going to help you face off against Tyron Woodley or Anderson Silver or Tommy Fury. For all that you can hate on them, and it's super popular to hate on them, and I, I've got my criticisms of them as well, you have to give them their due in some of these arenas. So we have this side of YouTube where you see the success uh, that is coming from virality and not and and I could say shamelessness in a way, um, inability to push past that shame, which is something that I don't think I could dive into, and I know it's something that you couldn't dive into, is kind of having that idea of like Fuck what people th say. I'm just gonna move on and make more content and go on, go on. I feel like you want to do things the right way. Like going forward, I, I, let's. I want to turn it around towards you and what you're trying to build and what you're trying to be remembered by. Because as of now, you have your integrity intact fully. And to try and risk that uh, for some even further metric of success, I don't think it's worth your while. Am I right in saying that? Certainly, yeah, but you don't know what uh, cognitive biases or rash decisions you're going to make in the future. I think uh, Gwinda Bogle, one of my favorite thinkers from the UK, says um, people will spend weeks analyzing a tweet that was written by somebody famous while they were having a half-hearted uh, half thought sat on the toilet. The point being that the disproportionate impact that someone who's well-known's words can have and how much they're analyzed versus how much thought was put into them can happen a lot. My point being that you can make decisions that are kind of just flippant in the moment, but have really outsized results longer term. Um, I'm not intending on compromising my value or, or my integrity with the work that I do. When it comes to, I guess, the goals longer term for me, I just really, really enjoy doing the show. I really enjoy the people that I speak to. I always was re resentful of the fact I didn't do philosophy or uh, psychology at university. And then I realized partway through last year that I basically got to design my own perfect university course with the smartest lecturers on the planet. And I don't have to hand any assignments in. And I get to speak to them on my schedule. I remember at one point, it was either, it was probably sometime last year, I was like, do you, you realize that you're... Um, taking the perfect university, you know, course system, not only do you, so if you think about going to class, if you were to prep before going to class, which I absolutely never did. <laughs> prep before going yeah, to but that, that's like, that was what your professor would tell you to do yep. is like, just take 20 minutes and prep before going reading. to, yeah, yeah, do the reading right before you go. But that's also homework, right? You, you get homework and that's your prep going into class and, and reading that's assigned to you. Um, but you take the time to say, okay, I'm about to get a lecture from somebody. Not only is it a lecture, but it's an interactive lecture where they're talking to me directly and I'm asking them in real time. They're not just talking to a bunch of people and then maybe I'll get my question asked. It is directly, 
they will even adapt the way they speak so that you can understand it better. You personally, Chris Williamson. Now, before all of that, I'm going to research this person and what they've said, and I'm going to take notes on it, and I'm going to get questions ready so that I can understand it better. And then when it's over, when you guys are done, you're going to listen back and take notes on the thing. It's if anyone knows, a, if anyone could be given like a, what would it, what would it be called? Like a, when you're like given a degree from somewhere, but you didn't actually go there. Like honorary. an uh, honorary. It, it would be Chris Williamson. And which, which, and we've talked about this a lot. It's like, and I said this to my, my dad, this is the one discussion I'm like, dude, because my dad read an, an evolutionary psychology book and all of a sudden it's like all of like all of his talking points about the way humans exist are based because it's it, you know you know when someone gets sees some content and then all, that's all they talk about yep. I'm like dad Chris this is all Chris does this is literally all he does like you're talking to me about this you should be talking to Chris and he's like yeah but what is who's Chris like in meaning like who like what school did he go to what's yep. his PhD and is he a professor what I don't understand I'm like it's it's hard for me to be like, no, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. Yeah. Well, it depends. Uh, I. It's interesting that some of the smartest and most interesting people have got no formal qualifications in the things that they do. And if you want to go to the source, if you want to really learn about what's going on, I think it's important to go to the people. That's why I like bringing academics on the show because I go, okay, you're the person that did the study. You're the person that came up with the theory. Explain to me about the dual mating hypothesis, David Busser. Explain to me about mate switching. Or explain to me about blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to the level of conversation that most people need to be at, you don't need to have the person that created the study. You just need to have someone that diligently understood what those people said. And yeah, it, it, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about this era of learning and curiosity, right? That we it's can access literally the smartest people on the planet and then even to take it one step further you so you think you have um i often think about this to do with peterson peterson took about i think two decades or three decades maybe even to write maps of meaning which is his book that kind of tried to lay out how meaning is is discovered for humans how it's how it manifests in our lives so he takes whatever 20 or 30 years to write this book and then he does a lecture series which i think is maybe 20 or 30 lectures long and that's on youtube so he's all of this time that it took to think about it that then condensed down into a book, which is less time than it took to write, that was condensed down into lectures that is less time to listen to than it took to write the book or to read the book. And then you can listen to the videos at two times speed, which makes it even if all that you want to do is get the information from a podcast in, you can do it at two times the speed that I can. I can't speak at two times speed. I can't think at two times speed, but you can listen. So there is always this ever more concentrated ever more sort of distilled down version of the information and this is how you can kind of transcend and include transcend and include transcend and include and then you go okay now i've got all of these different little points that are the synthesis of this this idea and what am i going to go to next and we build on top so you're coming from behind right you're coming from behind you you don't have a phd in eve psych you you don't have these quote like these qualifications that i can put in air quotes and that is something that I'm obsessed with. I love the idea of success coming from, like, you're nipping at the heels. You're, you're fighting. Um, Jack White is someone who I bring up uh, as, as a perfect example of this. 
is he, he creates these situations creatively that are very difficult to work with. And because he's fighting through them, he creates amazing art. Mm. And he says it in one of his documentaries. He says, uh, nothing in, in his mind, nothing good has ever come out of convenience. And he goes further and he says, when I play live shows, I first off, I play a pretty much broken guitar and I have to make that thing sound good. So I have to fight with my guitar. I put my picks over on uh, my amp. I don't put them on my microphone. So if I drop a pick, I got to play without a pick for a while. I got to run over and grab a, a, a pick. When I know that there's a, a portion of the song that I have to get to the keyboard to, I put the keyboard a little bit further away. So that it makes it look interesting when I run, have to run over there and, and get, get to it. And if I don't get there on time, it it's, sounds different. But people like it because they know that I'm trying. Mm. And they're like, people can tell. He's like, I promise you, people can tell when you're not working. They can tell. And so in your instance, you're, you, you might not feel it. You might not even acknowledge it. But you are fighting to make yourself legitimate. And there's ways that you can circumvent this, this idea that you aren't legitimate. One of them would be like, you know, writing a book, but another would be having thousands of podcasts with evolutionary psychologists. <laughs> and everybody else, right? Yeah. There's this uh, uh, Stephen Leacock quote uh, that he once observed, I'm a great believer in luck, and I find the harder I work, the more of it I have. And it's, it's one of those things, man, like on the wall behind Cameron Haynes, I've got, oh, I can't take this off because you've made me wear headphones. Uh, I have a, a Rogan Haynes 24 cap on at the moment. And I got to spend a couple of days in Oregon with Cam a few weeks ago. And you'll see in his, if you look at the lift run shoot stuff that he does or any of his training footage with him and Truett, his son, that's just a f savage. You see he did a thousand pushups in an hour. Pull-ups. Push-ups. Push-ups? thousand push-ups in an hour. Whoa. I think a thousand pull-ups in an hour would basically be impossible. Oh, but um, he did the 24-hour pull-up. Correct, yeah. yes. Um, but he's got written behind his barbell in the squat rack is must be nice. He's got that written, must be nice. I was like, what the f must be nice? I it's, love that. It's because every single person says to me that's a hater on the internet says, must be nice, must be nice to have this great sponsorship from height and must be nice to have this nice car and must be nice to have that nice house and must be nice to be able to spend all of your time training and carrying a rock up a hill must be nice there is nothing nice about what cam does there is nothing nice about what goggins does there is very few nice things about the way that it what i have to do to get the episodes out in the way that i do you know today's wednesday which is edit day for me i still do Every audio edit, every ad read, every thumbnail design for Video Guy Dean to do, every title with B options in case that doesn't work, all of the descriptions for YouTube is done by me, all of the scheduling for guests is done, all the research of guests is done, all of the planning for guests is done, everything is done by me. Must be nice to have a 700,000-person YouTube channel. Must be nice to not have to get up and do it. It's like, dude, I, I, I work regularly until 1 or 2 in the morning to make sure the episodes get done. I've edited episodes in on airplanes, in airports, hours before it's supposed to go up because I'm in some godforsaken time zone. All of these different challenges that I've come up against are things that I want to do. Yes, I want to do them, so it's not that hard. Is this as hard as someone that is a logger 
for a living. Absolutely not. No way at all. But I work hard. And that's why Cam's must be nice thing is a nice reminder. It's like, you put the work in. You know that you put the work in. And for the people that disregard it and say that it is uh, just a byproduct of, of fluke or good timing or whatever, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's satisfying. It's satisfying to know that their opinion couldn't be more wrong. There's things that I've noticed you do that you've developed, and it's very cheeky, some of these things. Like, a lot, and this is why it's fun to to see these things. You know the the common thing that everyone says, they make it look easy type of thing? It's because they're just not talking about their process. That's all. Correct. Right? And for you, it's like, well, yeah, you don't talk about your process, but I know it because I live with you. <laughs> you okay? So the Goggins thing was hilarious because look we talk about like prep for for podcasts and uh how a lot of times podcasts can get awfully broy and they can just they just have no point to them and they just kind of are just two dudes chatting with no prep and that's fun sometimes mm-hmm. um but you also don't want to do an interview on the other side this is not a 60 minutes interview so how can you get Goggins to sit across from you and make it seem like it's just flowing, like the conversation's just flowing. When in reality, you know exactly what clips you want. In fact, you know exactly what timestamp you want each clips you want. You order each question so that you know in, in which place the clip is going to be so that people can click the full interview and get to that clip Maybe they've already seen that clip so that the interview, you know, you know exactly when you're going to release all this stuff. And you did all of that with six months preparation, right? Six, you'd say? Yeah. It's it's things like that. Um, and then also your way of speaking, too. You'll say, do you know about this? Have you heard about this? You know, things like that to get people to talk about the thing that you want to get them to talk about without being like, right. Let now me ask you another. About this now we're talking. Thing. Yes. <laughs> you you do these things and they're definitely learned, right? This this is not something these are these are actionable things that you have decided you want to do. Right? This isn't just a natural talent thing that you've picked up on. Maybe you don't acknowledge these things. And again, I'm psychoanalyzing you a little bit. I'm saying you do this, you do this, but this is what I've noticed. You 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 have this way of um, taking these actions, but not speaking on them and like making them seem natural. And I think that that is ultimately like what makes must be nice. That's what makes it like a legitimate thing in the eyes of the beholder, right? The, the pers- goal is to make it look so natural that yeah. it doesn't look like there's any effort. And it looks right. nice. Yeah. Yes. It, it looks, yeah. looks looks like it was easy. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you could imagine, um, let's say that uh, in another world, a person lives for a thousand years and all that they have to do for a thousand years is work out the most efficient way to get a barbell overhead, right? They eventually would probably come upon something similar to the snatch. My point is that if you iterate on something for long enough, you end up getting close to what is supposedly the most efficient way to do things. And then when you actually find something through iteration and through time and practice that does work, like saying, uh, have you heard of this? Or did you notice this story came out over the weekend? Um, Then you go, okay, that's a strategy that has come out. It's emerged naturally from doing a lot of 
episodes or conversations or whatever, the, the way that you hold your knife when you make cakes in your bakery or whatever it is this is just something that you happen to do and you go oh my god like this is a really effective strategy because it saved me all of this time of doing this thing or it, it comes out better or whatever um then you learn from yourself you become your own teacher and if you assess a little bit of your own performance and you say i really like the way that that looked or sounded or flowed or tasted or whatever and you go okay that's good that's something that i should i should keep that that should stay and i can keep that as a a uh, mainstay of my of my process and I can build on that and I can do some other little bits and pieces but yeah I think with regards to the um the prep for podcasts and the effort and stuff this kind of comes back to the leverage conversation there is a, a a big world of creators out there that want to um turn up and record the podcast and then leave and that's fine dude like most podcasters aren't podcasters first they're comedians with a podcast or singers with a podcast or actors with a podcast or anything with a podcast weightlifters with a podcast um <laughs> i and, try and that means that they have other things to do which is fine but there are a bunch of people for whom they say that this is the thing that they want to do and they're letting the that b before their show is even close to sufficiently big as far as i'm concerned they're outsourcing the work the key work, the most important stuff to other people. There are shows that are way, way, way smaller than mine that use guest booking agencies that circulate guests on a rotation through maybe 10 or 20 different shows. So they don't basically choose who's coming on the show. It's just someone that knows what books are coming out next and who's doing the rounds and whatever. And they'll just book them on. You go, well, like, how does this show have anything close to your fingerprint of interest on it. You're not choosing the people that are coming on your show. You're just letting someone else do it. And when it comes to titling or thumbnails or everything else, like these are all of the different touch points that people have with your content. And this goes for whatever it is that you want to do. Like now we have to try and balance this with my desire for essentialism, which is to focus on the vital few, not the trivial many, right? That you do need to relinquish control. We have a great maid called Martha who comes around once every couple of weeks because me and you suck at cleaning and, and doing the washing up and stuff like that. So I'm happy to outsource things that I don't think are my highest points of contribution. But when it comes to titling, thumbnails, um, booking the guests, choosing the guests, doing the research, there's entire teams behind podcasters that I know of that do the research for them and then feed them the questions. These are the things that you need to look at. Here's a couple of blog posts. In fact, that's not the blog post. Here's the segment from the blog post that you need to read in order to be able to understand what's going on. Okay, so you haven't even really done your own research on this person. Now, maybe they're able to grow their show more effectively or whatever, but they're not going to learn in the same way. And that's not the way that I want to do it. I don't want to, I don't want to feel like... Um, you know, like the 1990s world of boy bands where it was all prefabricated and, right, we're going to have like the the one with the beard and we're going to have the one with the smooth hair and we're going to have the one that's a bit more feminine. We're going to have the one that's in the sport, like sporty spice and scary spice and posh spice. I don't want that. I don't want to feel like that as a podcaster. And I don't think that people should desire to feel like that for most of their pursuits because it's not going to be real. You're going to be playing a role. You're not going to be existentially connected to what you do. So I've got to be honest with you. I did absolutely zero prep for this. We spoke about it in the car. Yeah. And the reason why is because all I do is listen to your podcast and I live with you. Yeah. Or so, listen to me record my intros for my podcast. Yeah. So it's like I, I've been doing prep on you for the last three years, bro. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. So that's fair. Uh, and look, the reason why I love your channel is because it reflects like whether you like it or not, your story is and you you always tell it to me, it's like in your twenties you struggled, but you didn't quite know it. And you didn't have the answers to the world. And my channel is predominantly 25 to 35, 34-year-old males. And almost every time you have a guest on, it's like you're looking out for your guys. And by looking out for your guys, you're looking out for your past Chris Williamson. Mm -hmm. And if I want to get anything out of this podcast or anything out of my channel, I want to do the exact same thing, is look out for my guys. Look out for the past me, because my 20s were rough as well. I feel like there's really n not many ways to circumvent having a rough 20s as a male. Mm. I can only speak for males because I am one, and I'm not talking, we're not excluding the fact that women can have rough 20s as well. Um, but there are things that that group can do to mitigate the fallout later on in their life. Serious fallout. Because it is a very trying time in their life. And that your body of work directly correlates with that age, that age demographic. Well, so if I, if I could, I, I, I really want to hammer on that. Where do you think that males are struggling? Or, or I guess let's paint a picture of how that group has been struggling, whether it be physically, mentally, and how these things have changed. Yeah, good question. So certainly for me, I found my 20s to be quite confusing because I was doing things that society said I should take a lot of pride or value in, uh, monetary success, status success, um, women, freedom, like hedonistic lifestyle, being able to go to Ibiza and run nightclubs and stuff like that. But I was finding it lacking. I was finding it not sufficiently fulfilling to me and I couldn't work out why everyone was telling me that this is the thing that I'm supposed to find that it's supposed to be amazing it's supposed to make a, a young man's life and it, don't get me wrong it was fun my 20s was fun but there was also bits of it that weren't so fun and I couldn't work out why and it made me feel like broken and um ungrateful in certain ways um some of the things that I think to roll on from that that guys are struggling with at the moment would be uh, certainly um, physically m the declining testosterone rates are not very good they're you know you're having super low testosterone is going to be associated with things like depression and low mood um, not having a culture a particularly active culture in the UK or in the US, you know, you think even you look around the gym and you go January 1st, it's so busy in the gym. Yeah, but it's not that busy and there's not that many gyms and there's a lot of people. Where are they all? Well, they're not training. They're not in the gym doing things that are going to make them feel, and sure enough, you can go and play rugby or ultimate frisbee or go and do whatever. Your physical pursuit doesn't have to be lifting weights. I think physically guys are struggling and I think that a strong body makes them feel especially as a young dude especially if you're a dude that's maybe been a little bit skinnier as you were growing up it makes you feel powerful it makes you feel like a man you're trying to feel like a man at age 20 21 i know that i did i went to uni at 18 years old and i was i remember the the week that i broke 70 kilos 
in in body weight. And I was like, oh my God, this is so good. I'm massive. Like, this is great. I'm only going to need another couple of tubs of protein and I'll be done. And um, <laughs> I enjoyed feeling physically more powerful because it made me feel less vulnerable and it made me feel more dominant and, and more masculine physically. So that's one. Um, I think in terms of roles that guys have got, what does it mean to be a man? Like, where is a firm place for masculinity to stand at the moment? You know, like, protect, preserve, provide. Like, honor, integrity, courage, telling the truth, doing hard things. It's pretty easy for modern culture to throw those things under the bus and say, oh, that's just the patriarchy. So you're saying that women need to be protected from men? Why Why is it that women need to be... Why can't men just treat women in a way that makes them feel safe. Why is it that women need to be protected at all? Or you need them to provide? What, you're saying that women can't provide for themselves? You're saying that women shouldn't have a career? You're saying that women want to be domestic prostitutes and get back in the kitchen? It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't say none of those things. But because there is a zero-sum mentality at the moment that is pushed toward men versus women, the presumption is that any man's gain is a woman's loss and vice versa, which is not true. Like Men and women want both sexes to be competent and to be happy and to be fulfilled. What you don't want is to have a group of backbiting, scarcity mentality individuals who are looking across the other side of the aisle and saying they're taking something from me. So I think it's hard for guys to physically feel uh, as strong and capable as they want to. Physiologically, that's got a ton of hormonal problems, which is going to create a, a, a foundation potentially for depression and low mood. I think that uh, existentially, in terms of the position that guys hold in the world, that there aren't many firm places for them to stand that can make them feel proud and is, is aspirational. You know, like to tell a guy, you should feel fundamentally wrong for your inherent masculinity. Isn't you're not going to get many guys on side to be self-hating, like man-hating. Uh, self-flagellators like whipping them oh you're right you're right please tell me again mistress tell me again about how bad i am like that's not something that most guys want and then i guess uh final two elements here uh would be education employment as one of them guys are dropping out of college guys are dropping out of the workforce men have dropped out of the workforce by 0.1 percent every single month since 1950 it's declined. We're at an all-time low of male labor force participation. It's currently about 68% in the US, and it's going to be down to 65% by 2040. And it was at 85 87% in 1950. So you just steadily got fewer and fewer and fewer men in work. What are they doing? I don't know. They're smoking a lot of weed and playing a lot of video games. On average, the uh, a US male between the ages of 18 and 30 spends 2,000 hours per year playing video games and I think 50% of them are smoking weed or taking some sort of prescription or non-prescription drug. That's on average. There's a ton of people that we know. That I can't remember the last time I played a video game, but that means that there's some guys out there that are playing 4,000 hours or maybe even 10,000 hours, right? Yeah, there's the outliers. Or, Pre precisely, or, correct. Yeah. yeah, you've got to compensate on both sides. So education, employment, not very good. Guys are falling away with regards to that. So you have someone who's hormonally got a foundation which is maybe suboptimal for them who existentially doesn't feel like they have a particularly good role in the world who uh environmentally is disliked by mainstream media who doesn't have the ongoing progress that education or a career would have given them and then finally sexlessness right which is my thing 
for all that people can say, I don't need to have uh, a partner. I don't need to have sex. You know, I'm I just oh, go monk mode and hold on for the sex robots boys because they're coming soon. If you look at, I only realized this this week. So I was, I was trying to find a justification for why people should care about not having a partner in their life, both men and women, right? I, I posted a, a video recently from Tom Billy when I was on Impact Theory talking about the number of sexless men and uh, a ton of replies from guys said like, why should I even care about this? Like this, I don't care. Like I'm fine. Everything's going to be fine. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the bottom where there is air, right? And food and shelter, it's sex. Sex is at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy yeah, of it's needs. A, it's the base. Yes, it's yeah. the base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's below a social connection. It's below having a job that you contribute to or a life goal that fulfills you. It's below all of those other levels, right? It's way below self-actualization. It's at the bottom. If people aren't having sex, if guys don't have a role that they feel they can f mm -hmm. fulfill with pride, they don't have an education or a career that they can fold themselves into that will give them a sense of progression, and if society at large considers them to be dangerous humans, that's not a very nice situation for guys to be in. Like, And if you are a woman that either intends on getting into a relationship with a guy or intends on potentially giving birth to one in the future, you should care about this as well. So intuitively, what, what do you think are the things that can combat this? I think there needs to be a holistic movement towards um, like ethical self-development, holistic masculinity, third wave manosphere, as I've called it, which is... Mm. Interesting. So, is this like you're, you're saying... An an evolution past red pill. Correct. Yeah. So first wave manosphere was pickup. It was the game. It was Neil Strauss. It was mystery. It was Very negging. heavily misogynistic. It was neurolinguistic programming. Now what happened during Me Too was that that needed to be very heavily sanitized, right? We needed to get. You couldn't have guys learning the sequence of ascending questions that would display value and get any woman into bed because of neurolinguistic quirks and biases in the brain like that does feel, in retrospect, a little bit predatory. So men's advice came back around, and this time it was alpha and beta, it was high value and low value, it was red pill, it was MGTOW, it was incels. But it still fundamentally sees men and women as adversaries, which I don't think is going to work. First off, I don't think that it's right. But secondly, it's not going to be accepted by society at large because it's too adversarial. It, you're not going to get a movement of, that is pro-men to go mainstream in popular culture for as long as you can say, see, they are the misogynists that we always said that they were. You need to have it. I came up with a little idea the other day that um, Me Too sought to sanitize men's behavior and instead it sterilized it. Interesting. It just ripped everything out. So third wave... Third wave manosphere would be... Third wave men's development would be understanding the principles of attraction, understanding what it is that men need, connection, brotherhood, a purpose, the ability to achieve it, progress, growth-mindedness, telling the truth, courage, honesty, physicality, all of those things. And they need to be able to use it in a benevolent way, right? You need to be powerful. You want to be a warrior in a garden, not a gardener in a war. You want to be as dangerous as you can be and choose not to use it, not to be good only because you are weak and this is the 
Me Too sought to sanitize men's behavior, but instead mm -hmm. sterilized it. Right. That it made weak men because weak men can't be bad men. You don't want weak men that can't be bad men. You want strong men that choose to be good men. Right? And that, I mean, this is Peterson's of course for forever. Yeah. yeah. But it just, it, what Jordan did was he got, I think, had he kept going on that line for another few years, I really think he might have pushed through the critical mass that we needed. But he took his time away to recover, and now he's on to like more broad social right, uh, right. conversations. He's not really speaking to young men in the same way. Well, I think you know there's a void there, and I think you could fill it to a certain extent. There's a, a lot of a lot of like I, I'm having a conversation at the moment with BBC Radio Four World Service about doing a, a documentary series next year on uh, men or this year on sort of men and, and what men are struggling with. Richard Reeves's book. Um, uh, of boys and men it was phenomenal really great breakdown of education employment and fatherhood and how that's falling away but there needs to be something man because the bottom line is like this current era of red pill manosphere advice has a ton of kernels of truth in it uh th there are some really really great things in it but there are also a lot that's overblown and it's simply not going to be first off applicable to all men or most men and it's not going to be accepted by society at large because it treats me, uh, women as the adversary. It treats them as a, a competitor. If you say that by sleeping with you, you're winning and the woman is losing, what sort of a foundation is that to talk about yeah, relations between the sexes? Like, and that's how that's how it's it's put across, right? Game, like game. You play the game. You win or you lose, right? So here's another it's, one. I, I think it's I think it's very important that you argue against the red pill movement in trying to produce this third variation of the manosphere. It's very important. I, 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 it's, it's important that you, um, argue against the men are enemies, misandry. Yep. But it's also very important that you do not allow these f heads in the red pill world to take over the voice of that. Well, this is the thing that if you, if you leave a vacuum, for conversation, it will be filled by somebody, right? Uh, for all of the people that have got a problem with the fact that Andrew Tate was the person that came out and spoke to young men, why is it that young men are listening to Andrew Tate? That's, why do you think that they're listening to Andrew Tate? No one else is speaking to them. Yeah. No one else talks to young men. No one else gives them an inspirational, aspirational, well-rounded, well-delivered message that they can look at and go, Actually, yeah, I, I really do feel like being that particular person. So this was, I, I learned this from Destiny when I asked him, why do you think the right has dominated the conversation with men? He said, it's because the left has done an incredibly good job of making a lot of different minorities feel very, very welcome. And it has completely abandoned men. If you leave the conversation with men to, if you completely abandon it, you cannot complain about who steps in to fill that void. Okay, please tell me, anybody from the left, and there will be many well-meaning people from the left that are listening now, I would love to know who you think is a universally acceptable on your side and on the right side of the fence role model that guys should look up to and should be like that is actually admirable. Because for all that some girls like him, Timothy Chalamet isn't it, and Harry Styles isn't it? And whatever sanitized, like very soy 
dude that you want to try and put forward isn't it. I I do, you know, I people might hate me for this, but I do feel like Destiny is pretty cool in this way that he does criticize the hyper left quite a bit. Destiny's he, great, man. Yeah. Destiny's great. And, Both and, of me, hey, look, do you want me to tell let's give the the internet some secret information. Me and you probably watch Hassan and Destiny as much as any other creator. Yeah, and it's wild because I don't align myself with Hassan almost on anything. Yeah. And I'll, there's a lot of stuff I disagree with Destiny on. I, I, And yet I watch them more because they're more compelling to me as creators than a lot of the right-wing creators. Yeah. Like, this. personally, that's just how I feel. And it, and it, I, I, yeah, that's, that's just it. They're it's, just more compelling. It's strange. I, I've spent a long time, especially during 2020, 2021, I must have listened to at least hundreds of hours of Matt Walsh and Ben Shapiro because... When and this is one of the great things that you have about daily news shows, especially with someone that you you get into. Um, when the news is moving super fast, you need someone that is just looking at the last twenty four hours. Because if loads of stuff happens changes every day, you need someone that's yeah, just daily, looking at the last daily. Day. Is nice. Yeah, it's great. So, that's why these streamers are crushing, man, because they're just daily. What's what's happening now? Yeah. yeah. Now yeah. the problem is if the news cycle gets slow, they start to scrape the bottom of the barrel. Mm -hmm. Some of the videos that I have seen that streamers it's like oh, nothing, nothing's happened in the news for a week. Like better talk about uh, there's a video on cheese. Let's do the video on cheese. Um, but. Shapiro and Matt Walsh for me were were great, and they still I still do have a soft spot for both of them. But there is a I don't know there is a little bit more boomer energy that Man, comes yeah, from I've, that sometimes. I just watched this uh, Shapiro talk about uh, Rihanna in the halftime show, and there she is grabbing her crotch, and it's like you know he's reaching for that for that boomerism, and that's kind of what exactly what you're talking about. And Hassan just sits back and goes, "This dude is reaching." Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you're right, you know? He is like, reaching. Yeah. But, but again, like, uh, I, I absolutely disagree with a lot of the stuff Hassan says, and I think he, he comes but across it, like, like a dick why, a lot of times. So this is the thing. This is something else that I've railed against for so long. And this is, to fold it back into that conversation about the manosphere and, and men's advice, it shouldn't be the case that me and you can't both enjoy What is a Woman by Matt Walsh and also watch two or three Hassan and Destiny vlogs per week. Oh, I'll do it no matter what. I don't care what anyone says. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I, you understand You understand that talking about that is yeah. a very – it's very difficult to find a place to stand on the internet there because needs of to the be, inherent tribal bias. There needs to be a safe space for people like us. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be able to do that because I do it every day, man. Well, I, most I don't people, have no problem clicking on a Ben Shapiro video being like, nah, I don't like it. Clicking on a Hassan video being like, nah, I don't like it. Or like vice versa or being like, I, I like do both like both of them. Yeah, yeah. 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 I have no issues with it. And if people have issues with it, f*** them, dude, because I, I just can't take it anymore. You're sounding very polyamorous with your content I, Your content consumption. Is I this am. Austin getting to you? Probably, yeah. The yeah. polyamory. Non-monogamy in your, your uh, political bias. Yes. Yeah, dude. I, so and when it comes to the, the, the red pill manosphere stuff, it's like, okay, so you're telling me that the only place that you have for men's advice is either uh, become high-value man, f*** women, yeah, create, and fit. create harem, yeah. or... Uh, fold over backward, wear dress, uh, say yes, please, no, please, how many bags, please, madame. Like the, 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 there has to be a a middle ground. And I would say at the moment that on the internet and on heterodox advice, it needs to lean less sort of toxic. And in mainstream, it leads to lean more toxic. So I'm a, f I'm a confusing guy, especially to Caroline, my, my girlfriend. 
I'm a very confusing guy. Because of the butt stuff? <laughs> no. No, so I I uh I'm a weightlifter. I'm a bit of a brute. I'm a bit of a blockhead. But you love being pegged. <laughs> Chris. I'm listening. Go on. So so I'm a bit of a brute, but I will cry when I see a, an emotional TikTok video in front of her. And then I'll play a very soft song that I wrote about her. And I will love certain aspects of like feminism. And I will talk about Joe Rogan, but also be like, hey, Joe Rogan's right about this, sweetheart. And I'll be like, you know, I'm just th I'm just confusing her. Which I, it's the well, only thing I can do is be like, I have to, in my heart, like I have to, I have to just agree or disagree with something, regardless of whatever bias it is. And I think if you are able to show that to another woman as a man, they they're gonna be like, wait, 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 wow, I didn't know that this was possible. So it depends on how comfortable that person is with themselves. So um, if I know one of your views. And from it, I can accurately predict everything else that you believe. You're probably not a serious thinker, but you are very reliable, right? If I know that you are pro-gun, and I can accurately predict that you're also pro-life and anti-immigration and pro-small government and pro-low taxes and da -da -da -da, all the way down, or vice versa, what it means to me is that I don't really need to be too worried or concerned about what you're going to think about in the future. It's like, oh, I, I already know Zach's position on abortion. Mm -hmm. I already know Zach's position on immigration. I already know Zach's position on whether he likes Joe Rogan or likes what the left has just said. Mm -hmm. The problem comes when someone's opinion falls on both sides of that line regularly. If you are someone who is difficult to predict, that means that you are probably telling the truth. The reason being that the price that you pay to have a non-partisan, non-typical opinion about a lot of different topics is very high. It'd be much easier to just be a partisan left-wing or partisan right-wing or partisan manosphere or partisan soy boy, like, philosophy. It'd be way easier to do that because it would be much more... Um, it would align you with an existing audience and echo chamber much more quickly. This is the reason that Sam Harris pisses off so many people because he was anti-woke but anti-Trump. He was pro-vax but anti-lockdown. Like, how, square that circle for. Yeah, right. How are you going to square that circle? However, the thing that you end up with, I can presume that Sam Harris genuinely believed the things that he believed. That doesn't mean that they're right, but at least he believed them. And the reason that I believe that he believed them is that the price that he had to pay in order to say those things out loud was so high that no well-meaning person would choose that difficult path if they didn't believe it. Why wouldn't you just say, that you were pro-Trump if you were anti-woke, right, if you didn't believe the path of least resistance. Pre yeah. Precisely yeah. correct. And the problem that you have is if you're in a relationship with somebody and the person that you're speaking to starts to deviate from your prefabricated mental model of what they should be, like Zach equals weightlifter equals manly man equals beef equals never cry. But then you see them crying, you go either wow, this is a multifaceted person who is prepared to forego my expectations of them in order to tell me their truth, or, oh my God, this triggers in me something which makes me feel uncomfortable because I don't know if this person's opinion is going to change in the future, which 
makes them less reliable to one regard or another? Uh, it requires introspection, which is a tough thing. So that's like a dangerous thing. Like you present someone, oh my God, I actually don't know what men are. I thought yeah. that I knew that they were all pieces of Um, I thought that, you know, Zach was a manly man, but now he wants to get pegged. He does want to get pegged. <laughs> all right, that's it. We're going to wrap it up. But I guess this is more of the tough part because I just, I feel like, I would feel remiss if I didn't say this. Dude, this journey that you and I have been on has been so awesome. And I remember looking at you one time and being like, dude, it's these times, it's this time, like right now, that we're going to look back on and be like, wow, this is great. These are the golden years, man. These are the golden years. Really, really, yeah. really they are. And I, I want to say that, you know, uh, you looked out for me in ways that maybe you don't know you did and you believed in me when not many people did and i think it was not because you thought just that i was talented or that i had a good future but you just genuinely cared and so i will always appreciate you for that man seriously it may, it, it means the fucking world to me and i love you for that i love you man all right let's wrap this shit up man <laughs> Oh, right. let's go and peg me. Come on. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. I just want to plug. Yeah, this is a really important uh, podcast because this is my best friend on the planet and roommate. And also, like, his podcast is, is like, that's the shit that I want everyone here to be listening to, right? It's This is the same group that... Um, you know, the 25 to 34-year-old men, but it, it could be any group. Um, it's it's a voice that directly educates you on all of these things that are really difficult to, to manage. So please check out his podcast, Modern Wisdom. Uh, you know, go, you know, Chris Williamson on Instagram. I think that's pretty much it, right? YouTube, Chris Williamson. Those are all of the things. Yep. Yeah, that's it, guys. Thank you so much. Buy the T-shirt. Go buy the T-shirt. Oh, Barbellapparel.com. Yeah. That's right. Barbellapparel.com slash calendar. So, so, sorry, Gymshark. I'm, I'm, I promise I'll be back to wearing you next time. Thank you so much for watching. Uh, if you enjoyed that, click here to watch me interview five times CrossFit Game champion Matt Fraser.